Well, as I mentioned already, uh, this morning we have the privilege of having uh, Dr. Mark Snowberger come and speak to us, and uh, he is uh, no stranger uh, to our uh, to our congregation here. I think I try to bring in at least once a year, and sometimes we have the privilege of having him uh, multiple times a year. Uh, but he is a professor of systematic theology at uh, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. He was uh, my professor. He was also uh, Pastor David's professor and now is one of uh, Pastor Brett's uh, professors. And I don't think you ever had Pastor Curry for a class, no. So, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think, you know, we, from time to time, I think, I, just want, I, was, I was thinking this this past week is about him coming. Uh, we have, you know, have the opportunity to have lots of, of guest speakers here, and uh, some of them are just people that we know and come, and, and they, they share God's word. Uh, but there are, are certain times, and like was the case with, uh, with Dr. Snowberger, um, there is a sense in which his fingerprints are on this ministry. Uh, so, yeah, he only comes once a year and shares one or two sermons with us, but uh, the continuing impact uh, that he has on our church uh, through, through teaching our pastors, uh, through continuous, continuous uh, influence in his, in his writings and thinking on, on different uh, concepts and theological issues. Um, so when he comes here this morning and he speaks to us, there's uh, not the disconnect that we might expect as there's just as a guest speaker, but someone for whom we should be very grateful uh, because if you benefit from the ministry of the word weekly here, uh, then part of that is due uh, to the influence that he has had on the men here who regularly preach the word. And so I want to say thank you, Dr. Snowberg, for your ongoing ministry to us, uh, both as, as, as pastors and then as a, in, our, in our congregation. But I want to say thankful to him, and I think you should be thankful to him as well. And so uh, at this time, we'll ask you to come and, and share the word. He's going to be speaking tonight as well in our 6 o'clock service. We'll look forward to having him share with us. So thank you. Thank you, Joey. I always wondered whether you would uh, graduate to Joe or Joseph or something. But Joey seems to fit, though. So, well, Thank you, and uh, thank you for that kind introduction. I don't think I can follow it up very well, um, but uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. And to close the loop, I, I was in school with Mike Sanders, so we were, we were classmates. So, um, so, we, so we're, we're all part of, the same, part of the same stream here. So, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. It's hard to believe, but uh, we are already today entering into what's often called the Passion Week, literally the week of suffering. Culminates in Christ's crucifixion, and the suffering really begins uh, rather early in the week, which is why it's called a Passion Week. And it's going to culminate, of course, with the uh, crucifixion of Christ and then the greatest event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a disproportionately large block of material in the Gospels is given over to this week. I say disproportionate, but uh, we're recognizing, of course, that God is the one who chose that it be this way. But 40% of many of your Gospels, uh, depends on which Gospel you're looking at, but 40% of the Gospels is given over to this one week of the life of Christ. I'm going to do something here um, that uh, I don't, I, I rarely do. I, I preached a sermon very similar to this about 
nine years ago when I was here. So uh, you, might you, might, you might remember it. I, I, my wife said, don't count on it. So, <laughs> so we're, going, we're, going to, we're going to do that. Um, the church calendar is not widely accepted in Protestant circles. Uh, Christmas and Easter usually are about all that make it uh, into our into our into our church life, but the, uh, the 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 triumphal entry here on Palm Sunday is one that uh, occasionally rises to at least be mentioned. And since I'm going to be preaching on the day after the Monday Palm Monday, whatever you call it here, the Monday of Fashion Week, I'm going to go ahead and read. I'll start in verse one, just so we can get a running start. I think it's just just good for us to review uh, what happens here at the, on Palm Sunday. So we'll start in verse uh, 1 and read all the way to verse 25, uh, but we will be preaching narrowly on verses 12 through 25. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany in the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went and found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks upon it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And then comes the hinge. Jesus entered into Jerusalem, went into the temple, looked around, but it was already late, so he went to Bethany with the twelve. Very anticlimactic. On the following day, when they came back from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who called, sold pigeons or doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything throughout the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they left the city. And as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, 
it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, and if anyone has anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we begin here with a triumphal entry. Uh, even longer ago when I was here, we preached from Luke 19. Uh, this was a, a, a parable that Jesus delivered before he entered into the city. And we find some, some clues about what is going on on this day. Jesus comes in uh, at, the, at the fulfillment of these prophecies concerning the arrival of the Messiah, rides in this yearling donkey, welcomes the praise of this crowd of disciples. It's a grand scene. It's a fleeting glimpse of that time in which Jesus shall reign where'er the sun its successive journeys will run. Such praise will one day be commonplace. But Jesus put a damper on this event before it even started in Luke chapter 19. Because as he approached the city, we find in that passage, he laid to rest a false supposition that his followers had in verse 11. They thought that the kingdom was about to appear immediately. But in a heartbreaking revelation, Christ has to say, no, that's not the way it's going to unfold. The man who would be king is going to face fierce opposition from his own people and will go away into a far country. This opposition, which culminated in the crucifixion, commences almost immediately. No, long, no sooner had the disciples begun to welcome Christ with praise and palm branches when the Pharisees storm up to stop Jesus and Jesus issues a stern warning if the praise stops verse 40 the stones will begin to cry out I used to think that uh, the, the point was here that if, if the stones if, if the people stop the, the, the stones will start cheering it's probably not exactly what's going on it's a it's a reference here to Habakkuk 2 11 this is the only other occasion where we find rocks crying out um, and uh, in this case they are they are howling in protest. You know, some of you perhaps watched some of the basketball games these last few weeks. And, and what happens when the home crowd sees their star player fouled hard under the basket? Well, they howl out. Oh, that was, that was wrong. That was unfair. Especially if, he, if no foul is called, right? Okay. Well, that's exactly what the rocks and the stones are going to do. Hey, hey, keep praising Messiah. And we find out here why that is. Because if the praise stops, this temple and its stones are going to be dismantled one by one until they, li they, they lie in a, in, in a heap at the bottom of the temple mount. And so the rocks are concerned, if, it, if I may, about what's going to happen if the people stop praising their Messiah. And so the glamour of Palm Sunday starts to fade almost as soon as it begins. This morning, what I'd like to look here is at the events of the next day, Monday, in which Christ goes into significant explanation about what has happened and what is about to happen. And he also takes steps, it seems, even to accelerate the tension. 
The most extensive account of that here, of course, is in the book of Mark, and so we will look at it here. And as you look at this passage, which we just read, it's easy to see the structure. It's the story of a fig tree, as those are the bookends, and in the middle we have this event where Christ clears the temple grounds. Now, noticing the structure might seem a little bit mundane, but we have to recognize that Mark isn't a poor author. He does this on purpose, right? So by sandwiching the event between the two pieces of the story of the fig tree, he's drawing attention to what is being explained here. So he's explaining with this illustration what is actually happening on this day when Jesus comes in and clears the temple ground. So Mark's not a poor writer, so we should be able to see some sort of a connection between these two stories that perhaps at first blush don't seem to be closely related. Let's start with the illustration of the fig tree. Cursing of the fig tree is a unique miracle in the Gospels. It's the only destructive miracle that Jesus ever performs. All the rest of Jesus' miracles were quite positive, right? He heals the sick, he restores sight, he restores hearing, uh, he resolves crises, he even brings the dead back to life, but this one's different. This one, he just, in this one, he destroys a, what appears to be a perfectly healthy tree. And it raises questions in our minds, right? Perhaps the most basic one is, did Jesus lose his temper, right? He goes to the refrigerator, it's empty, and so he pulls it away from the wall and throws it down on the ground. Did Jesus lose it? Did, did we read that right? Well, we've got to answer that question. Hopefully this one's an easier one for us. No, we have to look for some other explanation, but what, what, what is it? What is that explanation? Why would, secondly, the creator, the king, destroy a piece of his creation or his kingdom? Okay, why, why, why would he do this? And thirdly, if the purpose of all of Christ's miracles is to prove who he is, that is, he's the Messiah, and I think that's exactly what the purpose of all of Christ's miracles is, how does this help? And I think if we ask that question, we're on our way to understanding what's going on here in this chapter. So Jesus here is and was walking with his disciples towards Jerusalem from Bethany. In this day, people rarely ate as soon as they got up. They usually would do a little work before they broke fast. And so they're, they're simply following this pattern here, and Jesus is getting hungry. As he walks, apparently they don't have any food with them. He spots this fig tree in the distance and approaches it looking for fruit on the tree. And uh, when he gets there, gets close enough to see, looks under the leaves to see whether there's fruit, there's, there's nothing there. Following this is a rather perplexing statement. It wasn't the season for figs. So, so why was he looking for figs if it wasn't the season for figs? And why has he become upset if there's no figs there? Commentaries offer a variety of reasons, but the one I think is most compelling is that it was not the right time of year for mature figs. Now, I'm no horticulturalist here, so I'm, I'm borrowing brains entirely on this one. But I've been, able, I've been able to learn a little bit that figs ripen in two stages. And we, fi we find this multiple occasions in the Old Testament scriptures. We often hear to see descriptions of the early fruit and the latter fruit. Okay? So there's early fruit in fig trees and latter fruit in fig trees. So figs actually begin developing in the winter. In fact, Revelation 13.6 actually calls it winter fruit uh, because it's right on the tail end of winter, so close to winter that it actually, you know, it, it actually 
might still be winter, and these early figs would be showing up on the tree. These, these first figs are very juicy, but not very tasty, but they still had nutritional value, and so people would look for them, just like we look for the first fruit of the season, right? We, we, we look forward to those first strawberries that come out, or or, or later in the season when those first tomatoes, those, those, those vine-ripened ones that were actually born, uh, grown here in Michigan that are much tastier than the ones we get now, right? We look forward to it. And, and, and that, it was no different then. And if, you can, if you're thinking, tracking here, this was about the time of year it was, right? So end of March, beginning of April. And uh, Northern Hemisphere. So you can imagine there's not a, an expectation of much ripe. Uh, mature fruit, but he had this expectation of these early figs. And when he got to the tree, he found out that there was none there, and he cursed the tree. Now, at this point, the disciples may have gotten a hint about what Jesus was doing. It's hard to know. They don't actually say. Certainly, they start to pick it up by the time we get to the end of the chapter. Perhaps you have picked up a little bit. I've I've mentioned already that the Old Testament talks about these early figs, and so perhaps you're wondering, oh, what what does it say about these early figs? Maybe we can get a clue about what's going on, and it's true. We can. Micah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 is is the first of these. Micah 7, 1 and 2. We find here that Micah says, after, you know, he's just indicted the wicked of Israel because of their disobedience. It's in a long section here about what the Lord requires and the fact that the Israelites have not been meeting those requirements. And these verses are Micah's response as he looks about and describes the people to whom he is ministering. Woe is me, he says, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe figs, early figs, that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts for each other with a net. And it goes on to describe them further. But the point here is made that these unfaithful Israelites, these wicked Israelites, he compares, he makes an analogy to early fig trees, which are, early figs, which are absent from the tree. Hosea 9.10 is our next, next of these. Hosea is recounting, in this case, early, Israel's early history. He makes a similar comparison, like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on a fig tree. So this, this, is, this, is, this is fledgling Israel. I saw your fathers in this way. But then they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to this thing of shame and became detestable. So here the comparison is stated somewhat positively. During the first days of, Israel, of the Israelite nation, God describes them as early frig, figs with some promise. But then things fell apart, right? So they were godly, and so they were like a fruitful fig tree. But then they became ungodly, and the implication is all of the fruit disappears. Jeremiah 24 gives almost an entire chapter over to a comparison of 
baskets of figs. And here, uh, I'm not going to take you to this one just because it's a whole chapter, really. Uh, There's a third mention, though, of these early figs with reference to Israel, this time in the form of a vision of two baskets, both filled with early figs. One basket is filled with good figs, and God says these represent the godly Israelites who had repented while they were in exile. The other is filled with, if you have a King James, naughty figs, bad figs, figs of poor quality that couldn't be eaten. These, God says, represent the wicked of the land who were about to fall under severe judgment. But let me take you to the last occasion. I know it's in the book of Luke, which follows after Mark, but it's, it's in, the, it's in a, an earlier story in the life of Christ. So Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. I think this one's a, I think it's a particularly interesting one to see. It's a parable, and so we all recognize that parables are, are notoriously difficult to interpret, uh, but uh, let, let's try and do that anyway. He says here in Luke chapter 13, verse 6, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, didn't find any. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him, sir, let it alone one year more until I dig around it and put on some manure, and if it should happen to bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now it's a little unclear exactly what Jesus is doing with this parable, but what it appears to be is a, a statement about Jesus' own ministry. He has been, for some time, ministering among a recalcitrant people seeking their repentance, seeking them to turn to him as their Messiah and, and embrace him as such. And he's got about a year left in his ministry. And it appears that this may be a precursor to this second story that we find here in, in, in Mark. Let it alone one more year. If they bear fruit, great. If they don't cut it down. And so we find here, as we get into the book of Mark, that we've come to this point where the tree needs to be cut down. Now, the point is not, and I, I want to be cautious here, because I don't, I don't want to suggest here that any time you see a fig in the Bible, you can just automatically, you know, assign this meaning here to it. Uh, it, let, me, let me just point out a couple of things. One, it's a very specific analogy that's made. It's made multiple times by the Scripture writers. And so I, I, I feel that since this analogy is made four times for us already by the Scripture writers, then we, we get a sense that this might be exactly what Jesus is doing in this fifth occasion. Okay? So I'm not giving you permission just to you know, allegorize anything you see in the Old Testament. But with this level of specificity, I think we can draw the conclusion that there is a connection between all of these events. And if the disciples were sufficiently immersed in their Old Testaments, they were probably quite troubled when they heard what Jesus said. And I think that's the point of verse 14. We're back in, back in Mark chapter 11. The last words, and the disciples heard him. 
I think what, what, we, what we should think in terms of is that they did a double take. They said, come again? What, what did you just say? They heard him. Jesus wasn't just cursing a tree, and they were starting to come to grips with that. There was something that that tree represented. His chosen Israel nation was being cut off. It proved that Jesus was not only the loving Messiah who came to save, but also a righteously angry God into whose hands, Hebrews warns us, it is a dreadful thing to fall. And so with this disturbing background, Jesus now enters into Jerusalem. He's made a reconnaissance visit the night before. But now he comes in with a mission. He walks here into this huge court of the Gentiles, and he enters a scene of mayhem. It's hard to explain this area without seeing it. It, in many ways, is, is, is unchanged. After 2,000 years, this court of the Gentiles is an elevated stone platform about 40 feet above city level, and it, it, and it extends for acres and acres and acres. Uh, you can still fit hundreds of thousands of people on this, although there is some instability on the Temple Mount. They actually had a, a meeting of about a million Muslims for a uh, for some sort of celebration there, and the, uh, the foundations began creaking, and they, had, they actually had to evacuate it uh, years, years back here. Uh, so it, it's still there. It's still, uh, it is still empty, largely, and you can, you, can, you can still see it. But when Jesus arrived here, this whole area is filled with livestock, money-changing tables, people milling about doing commerce. And if you've ever perhaps seen a uh, you know, an, an old Middle Eastern movie like Khartoum or Lawrence of Arabia, even Indiana Jones. You know, you, 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 get, you, get, you get this picture here. People uh, milling about, engaging in commerce in, in, in dramatic fashion, as is often in the, the case in that part of the world. And you probably have a good picture of what Jesus saw. That's exactly what he saw when he walks into the Temple Mount, a scene of general mayhem. And Jesus is filled with righteous indignation. This should have been his moment as king. Had the Jews accepted him as the Messiah, this would have been the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. We sing about it at Christmas time, right? We seek the great desire of nations watching long in hope and fear. Suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ the newborn king. Luke puts it this way. It's a little bit more grim. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They shall not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You did not recognize that the Messiah had appeared in your midst. You just went along with your life. So this great desire of nations had appeared to visit his people in his holy temple, but nobody came to worship. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation by the king. There's no wholesale turning of the nation to embrace their Messiah. What does Jesus see? A tree full of leaves, but no fruit. The godly were absent from among them. There was a great number of Jews going through the motions of the, Christian, of the Jewish faith, 
But they were so blinded that they didn't even recognize God when he walked in their midst. In fact, when Jesus starts to assert his messianic privileges, his crown rights, as it were, begins overturning the tables, the immediate response of the Jewish leaders was, we've got to figure out some way to kill this guy. Now, why did Jesus choose to attack the livestock sellers and the money changers? Well, let's start off by saying it's not their existence that is a problem. Uh, You must realize that every faithful Jewish man came to Jerusalem at this time of year for the Passover as two other occasions each year. And they had to bring uh, half a million Jews. All of them would have to bring uh, a sheep or some sacrifice. Uh, could be a pair of doves. Many of them travel hundreds of miles, but they're all required to bring this sacrifice. It wasn't really possible for them to bring a spotless sacrifice over the road like this. And so it was perfectly acceptable that that provision be made uh, for this practice by local farmers, local shepherds. And so this was very common. Uh, People came from all over the Roman Empire as well, so it was necessary for them to exchange their currency in order to pay the temple tax, which is one shekel. So most of the Jews didn't have shekels, so they had to trade for them. So money changers were a necessary part of this sequence as well. But what's the problem? Well, apparently it was the desecration of the temple. Selling animals, exchanging money was fine, but it should have been taking place somewhere other than the temple precincts. Why? Because the temple, as Jesus said, was designed, and particularly this temple mount, this large area, was designed to be a house of prayer for the nations. Ideally, what he should have seen is countless thousands of Gentiles streaming to Israel in order to take take advantage of uh, the benefits, the priestly benefits that that nation, that kingdom of priests could have given to them. that, That place should have been filled with Gentiles, this court of the Gentiles, praying. It was a place to meet God. But since nobody was there, it seemed convenient to them to set up their market there. It was a lot closer uh, than doing it somewhere else. So what should we do with this information? I've known of some churches, you know, to make an application of this, to conclude that God wants to treat the church as something of a sanctuary, a holy place. We should never sell anything. Um, And and there's probably some sense in which there there shouldn't be a lot of merchandising going on in a church, but I don't think that's what the point of this story is. Uh, Temple and the church actually have little in common temple was a truly holy place, a unique place where God dwelt, where Jews could go to meet God through the agency of human priests and sacrifices. We don't do that any longer. Um, We do have buildings which are a place to meet, but we do this largely as a local subset of the people of God. It's not particularly holy space that we're in. The temple of God, we know, is actually dispersed, you know, as, as believers, our bodies are the temple of God, Paul tells us. We don't need a human mediator or an ongoing sacrifice to pave the way uh, for us to meet with God because Christ's sacrifice has taken care of all that entirely. But with this privilege comes responsibility. Just as the Jewish temple was to be a place of prayer, we are to be what? A, a, A people of prayer. 
That's what temples are for, right? And if our personal worship of God and prayer to God are squeezed out by other interests, we may find ourselves resembling the first century temple. Unbelievably beautiful, but hollowed out of all of the worship that should be taking place. Or like Jesus' fig tree, filled with fine, pleasant leaves, but bereft of fruit. And this is a sobering thought. Provokes some careful examination. Leaves are a necessary part of life. It's not as though leaves are bad. Everyone has to do a little bit of merchandising, earning money, buying things, selling things. But we need to also be sure that in all of that, that these are not the dominant or exclusive features of our lives. We should strive not to be known primarily as people of wealth, people of intelligence, people of leisure, but people of worship and prayer. Because that's what temples are designed for. To bring this application home even more clearly then, Mark returns to the, in the following verse to the fig tree. And he makes a chilling observation here. The disciples were no doubt sobered by the events of the day so far. And they leave the city mulling over what they had seen and heard. And they, they're walking quietly along the road between Jerusalem and Bethany where they were staying. Peter looks up and he sees this fig tree. And he remarks to the group how quickly and thoroughly the tree had dried up. Look, that fig tree that you cursed, it's withered all the way down to the roots. And that must have been an unnerving thing, a shocking thing for them. Because for years, the disciples had traveled with Jesus, certain of the fact that he truly was the Messiah, watching with goosebumps as he performed all of these positive miracles. He had amply proved to them that he was the promised Messiah and they had accepted him. But now they saw this new and chilling side of Jesus. They had seen the limits of God's patience. They had seen the holy wrath of God unleashed against a tree and they recognized it wasn't about the tree. It was about the people of Israel, the religious people of his day. Perhaps we could even suggest that the kinds of curses here, while not the same, may apply to people in this very room. In fact, it was within the confines of a church that Jonathan Edwards launched the Great Awakening by delivering a very raw and terrifying sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he talks in this sermon about a wrath of God held back. But held back only, as it were, by the delicate, slender thread of a spider's web. One that could easily snap at any time and release the full force of God's wrath on mankind. As surely as he released it on this day on the, on the fig tree. O sinner, Edward said, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, and you are held over it by the hand of God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell, you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and every moment about to singe it, to burn it asunder, and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourselves, nothing to keep the flames of his wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you've ever done, nothing you can ever do to induce God to spare you. If anybody here knows this fear right now, 
Edward's hearers did. Christ's disciples did. Don't suppress it. Don't ignore it. It is, in fact, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And if you have this fear, I hope you cultivate it. So that you can take the steps necessary to address it now before that great day of judgment and that slender thread is broken. There is a solution, though, to this fear. Not in ignoring it or suppressing it, but embracing a solution that Christ himself gives here in verse 20. There's a, reassuring, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a reassuring alternative here, I should say, verse 22. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. And so this reassuring alternative to falling into the hands of an angry God is this. Have faith in him, and you won't know his wrath. Having faith in God, the kind of faith that is life-transforming and fruit-bearing, the kind that results in lives sufficiently uncluttered so as to be adequate temples for prayer and worship. This is an unnaturally powerful thing, the faith that makes this possible. God's power may be accessed by faith to supernaturally destroy trees, to remove mountains, we find in verse 23. But faith is also the source of of impossible life transformation that is attributable only to the supernatural working of God. Have faith in God, Christ says, for he alone can take a hell-bound sinner destined for wrath and conform him to the image of his dear son. And so I call all of you, dear friends, have faith in God to the saving of your souls and the transformation of your lives as a fruit-bearing tribute to the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are, we're grateful for these, just these tremendous stories that you give to us in the Christian scriptures. Uh, Lord, I ask that we would learn what we need to from this message this morning, from your word, and Lord, help us to take, take the warning as necessary and then ta- take comfort as well in the solution. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.